Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, good morning. You are a sight for sore eyes. I find uh, that I missed you guys. I was trying to... uh, uh, figure out why I was missing you so very much. I mean, I just saw you two weeks ago, and uh, I, I just found it. But I, I think I do know. I think I do know why. I don't want to give away the the message or anything like that. But we've most of you will know that Mitch Monroe, our outreach and missions director, and I were in London this past week. Got home uh, Friday night, so. I told the staff team, be sure and have a table and chair because I don't know what jet lag will do. Uh, I think you all are going to be fine. I think it's the next service that might, we might have a problem. But we, uh, we went to London to uh, find and identify some missions partners there. And uh, we met with International Mission Board personnel, with pastors, church planters, Uh, leaders of evangelistic organizations. I preached at Chiswick Baptist Church last Sunday, and uh, we got to connect from Wimbledon to London up into the northwest and then west again to a place called Swindon. And this is is what what we found. We found a city of 11 million people, a city that has 270 nations represented, 300 different languages spoken, we found uh, a, a city where 2% of the 11 million are uh, persons who know the gospel and have received it, 2%. So if I were to have 100 of you stand up and ask 98 of you to be seated, you would get a picture of what it's like in London too out of that. We, we found a city where whole regions, the northwest corner, uh, of that area, the IMB is identified with only three healthy gospel-bearing churches in a region of 450 square miles. And uh, we found a city where churches are struggling and dying, uh, where even gospel-bearing churches are stuck in the past and are not connecting with the present for the sake of the gospel and the future. We found a city where uh, half of those in it are from somewhere other than the UK. So we found a city that is busy and traveling and moving all the time and the nations are pouring in. And what we found then was a a city with huge global gospel opportunities from one end to the other. I guess part of what I see when I look at you is I see the distinct difference. But I also, between a church that is healthy and intentionally seeking to connect with its culture and its community, and um, I see, reflecting back, a struggling, dying church. But I'll tell you what, 
I saw, I had a warning too that what Britain is now, America will soon be if her churches don't come to understand who they are and why they're here and what we're here for. What we're here for. So I hope that in the uh, months and years to come as Jesus tarries that we're going to have some opportunities for you not only to go with International Commission to places like Myanmar and Cambodia, but to give you an opportunity, especially those of you who've never been on a missions venture, to go to London and make a difference for the sake of the gospel. But thank you for your prayers. Thank you for uh, uh, holding us up in that way. And I covet your prayers as I preach this morning. So here we go. I forget what time it is, but it's, it's not what you think it is, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, one of the things that the believers in London absolutely understood uh, is the value of the local church. That was something that came through again and again for me. And it's something that I think, I suspect, that many of us who are believers in the United States have forgotten and so makes, it makes this series that we're in, Discovering Church, uh, very, very important because this series is meant to help us kind of re-envision the church, to understand it biblically rather than trying to understand it in, in ways that uh, perhaps we would prefer or, or that we were taught. Well, my goal is to help us to see it and understand it in, in better, more biblical ways. Now, we've already said that in the New Testament, there are some 95 pictures of the church in the New Testament, 95 different metaphors, glimpses, views, or understandings of the church uh, showing us just how significant to God the church actually is. We looked at six portraits of the church from 1 Peter chapter 2, and we tried to understand better and seek more clearly the church as it is in this world from God's perspective, from, from, from those who are inside the church, what the perspective should be, and then all also from the perspective of the world. But today I want to go beyond the, 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 the pictures of the church and I want us to move to, to begin to ask the question as to what the church is in its essential nature. What does the New Testament say that the church is? This is what I think we've lost and this is what I think we need to recover with clarity what the church is. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 12 through 19. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 to 19. And what we find is Paul writing to the Ephesians and he's doing a, a powerful thing. He's telling the Ephesians, he's giving the Ephesians the story of the church, the story of the church. And he uses the story of the church to show the Ephesians the nature of the church, what the church effectively is in and of itself. This is what he says. He says to them, remember, and he's speaking here to Gentile, non-Jewish believers, uh, you and me, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, 
in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between us by, verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself, by his body, one new man or one new people in place of the two, Jews and Gentiles, so making peace. And so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body, in one people, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off. He came and preached peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, what is Paul doing here? He's telling us some stories. He's telling us some stories. Now, stories are powerful because stories shape, form, and fashion us. I'll never forget the story of one young woman who took her life. I heard it years ago, but it has stayed lodged in my mind because it it shows the power of story. She took her life and left a suicide note with two words. Two words on it, just two words, and those two words were, they said, they said. I don't know and you don't know what they said, but what we can say is whatever they said, whatever story they were telling was powerful enough to bring her to the place where she took her own life. And even as she was writing the note that would, uh, that would share the reason for her suicide, she could only get so far as they said. So powerful, so painful was the story they told, they said, they said. Stories form us, they shape us, they fashion us, they unite us, they divide us. Stories are powerful. Families have stories. Your family has stories. Some you're glad to tell, some you wanna forget, right? Everybody's got a family and every family's got a story. But you know, one of the realities is that with our family stories, the, the good stories, if we tell them to each other and remind each other of them, they help us to be made stronger. Those not so good stories, and I grant you some are better just left alone. But even the stories, the family stories of defeat can be powerful in that they serve as warnings to us of what we should not do and what we should avoid. Some stories are best forgotten, but very often the good and the bad, they need to be remembered so that you can repeat what is good and avoid what is bad. I want you to notice them with me. What Paul is doing in Ephesians 2, he he is telling a story, and for these very reasons, they shape us. They shape us. 
Now, notice with me, just go back in, in Ephesians 2, start at verse 1, and let's clip through there quickly to get to our passage. You'll notice that the human family has a story, and Paul tells it famously, beginning in verse 1. In verses 1 to 3, he says that the human family, all of us, every one of us, is dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, and by nature before God are children of wrath. So the human story, the story of every human being is we are dead and destined for wrath. But he goes on and he says there's another story. It's the story of God. It is the story of believers. It's the story of the church. Paul tells, tells us that the story goes on. There is another story, a new story, a transforming story beginning in verse 4. He says that God who is rich in mercy and great in love, despite the fact that we were dead in our trespasses, made those who believed in his son alive together with him saving them by his grace, placing them together with his son in the heavens, all as, I love this picture, trophies of his grace and proofs of his great kindness. And that is the story of the church. That is the story of God. That is the story of God in Christ. And that is your story and my story if we are in Christ. And you would think that that kind of story would be unforgettable, that I was once dead, now I've been brought to life. That, that I was once one way and now I'm a, I'm a different way because of the grace of God in me. I met a, a, a believer in, in London who was a recent convert and he said, for most of my life, I thought Jesus was a fairy tale. Literally, he wasn't being mocking. He wasn't mocking. He just said, I thought the story of Jesus was a fairy tale. And the more I dug into it, then I thought he was a tree hugger. <laughs> preaching peace and love to everybody. But he said, then I kept reading the Bible and I found out he was more than a fairy tale, more than a tree hugger. I discovered him. Watch this, watch this. He said to me, he looked me right in the eye and he said, and I discovered that he died on the cross for me and was raised from the dead. And he said, that made all the difference. My life is different because Jesus lives. And here's the thing. He said it like he really meant it. You and I tend to go, okay, I know this, I've heard this. Tell me something new. I suspect that's what was going, going on in Ephesus because notice what, what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and uh, verses uh, uh, 9 and following. N notice what he does. Notice what he does, or rather verse 12. He, he says, listen, Gentiles, hey, you, I'm talking to you, he says. I want you to remember. I want you to remember the story. You need to remember the story. You, you, you need to remember the, the story of the goodness and the kindness of God to you. And you need to remember what that means for you as Gentiles, as non-Jews who've been made to be God's people. You need to remember why. Because look, a forgetful people, no matter how wonderfully saved, is never a faithful people to the Savior. A forgetful people, no matter how wonderfully saved, 
is never a faithful people to the Savior. You cannot be forgetful and be faithful at the same time. That is why when we're walking closely to Christ and our hearts, and our hearts are fixed on him, we, we, we exude gratefulness and we exude obedience. But when we begin to drift from the gospel, we begin to drift from the cross, when that begins to happen, we begin to slip in our faithfulness because of our forgetfulness. So Paul says to the Gentiles, remember, you've got to remember. You've got to remember. What he does is he, he unpacks three things. And so we're going to unpack the first one here. But he unpacks this. He says, you've got to remember the miracle that you are, the mystery that you share, and the model you're meant to be. Here's what I want you to remember. You've got to remember this. The, the, the miracle you are, the mystery you share, and the model that you're meant to be. Don't forget, don't forget, because a forgetful people, no matter how wonderfully saved, is never a faithful people to the Savior. So what do we need to remember? Well, let's look. Let's look. Let's spend our time this morning in verses 11 to 16, all right? So first, he says, remember the miracle that you are. If you're going to understand what the church is, first, this is the place to start. Remember the miracle that you are. Remember that you were at that time, that is before Christ, separated from Christ. That you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of God's promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, remember this, now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I guess it goes without saying that if uh, we won't, uh, we don't remember, or we won't remember God's good news if we forget the bad news of our yesterdays. Now, I know it is a good thing not to, not to be fixated on past sins uh, that uh, uh, weigh us down, that the enemy uses against us. But, uh, so forget those past sins, if you will, but don't forget your past condition. Do you notice when you look at these, Paul's talking about their condition. This is your condition. You were without hope. This was your condition. You were without God in this world. This is your condition. You were a stranger to all of God's promises. He was talking about their condition, not their violations. It's important. So here, before Paul calls Gentile believers to remember the good news of what God has done, he calls on them to remember the bad news of yesterday and of what they were and what uh, condition they were in before Christ became Savior and Lord to them. Now, let's walk our way through this passage, all right? Here we go. Let's walk our way through it. Verse 12, Paul says that in the past, these Gentile believers were separated from Christ, which meant that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and which meant that they were strangers to the covenants of promised blessing from God. 
Whether they knew it or not, Paul is saying, they were living their lives without any hope in this hard world and completely without the God who created them and who alone could help them. You want to know what's going on in your neighbor's house? If they don't know Christ, they're living life without hope. They're trying to do life without help. And before you came to Christ, that was you. That was you. That was me. They were cut off. They were shut out. How how did this happen? Well, they were cut off and shut out by their own sin and their shortcomings, of course. The wages of sin or the penalty of sin is death, but the gift of God They were also cut off, though, by the sin and shortcomings, now watch this, of God's own people, Israel. Part of the sad story of humanity is not only humanity's fall, but the failure of God's people after the fall. God had called Abraham and promised to make him a blessing to the nations, promised to make him a blessing to the nations through his own descendants. It was part of his covenants of promise. His people were meant to be examples of the life God alone could give, missionaries, if you will, of the promises of a future restoration that was going to come by someone he would send. But God's own people, now listen, God's own people came to have hardened attitudes toward the non-Jews, the unbelievers. The Jews had come to see God as their possession. They had failed to remember they were his possession. And God help us when we start to think that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our God and forget that we are his people. When we begin to think that what happens to us is what happened to the Jews, they began to think that God was their God, and as a consequence of that, they began to believe that he was not the God of the nations. He was their God. He's not the God of the Gentiles. He was their God. And so they came to have a hardened heart toward those who didn't believe. You think that could happen to us? Do you think that could happen to us? Do you think that might have happened to us? They came to think that God was somehow uninterested in the Gentiles uninterested in the rest of the world, despite the fact that the Old Testament says plainly that God is not the God of Israel alone, that his desire was to reach all the nations of the earth. And what is more, that that the Israelite nation wasn't only to be a model and a messenger to the nations, but it was also to be the people from whom God would bring his Messiah into the world for the world. And it was in this way that he would make his salvation available to all the nations. But Israel failed in its mission and its calling. And there came to be an extreme separation of the Jews from the Gentile world. With the result that Paul says the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of the promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. And this same mindset is a problem in Ephesus. 
is a problem for the New Testament church. Even in the church, Jewish believers could be dismissive or feel superior to Gentile believers because God had called them to be his first. And Gentile believers could be forgetful of how far away they had been before Christ and the gospel, and they could be very ungrateful. And if they weren't careful, The same separations and divisions that were happening outside the church would happen inside the church. The same alienation, separation, division, hostility, hatred, all those things that have always shaped humanity since the fall would be seen again in the church. That's why Paul says, verse 13, now in Jesus... Things have radically changed. And though the Gentiles had once been far off from God and all that is good now, they have been brought near to him and his goodness by the blood of Jesus. By his shed blood on the cross, Jesus made a way for the cut off and the shut out to be brought near and brought in to God and all that is good, his commonwealth, his people, his covenant blessings, his hope himself. How did it happen? Well, verse 14 explains it. Jesus brought them close by making himself their source of peace. He is the source of peace, not just with God, but also he's the source of peace with each other. In his flesh, Paul says, by his perfected life, his substitutionary death, Jesus broke down those old walls of of hostility that have always divided people, always divided groups of people, people from people, nations from nations, Jews from Gentiles, and he did it ultimately by, and he did also ultimately break down that wall of hostility that had existed between God and humanity. He tore down the walls. When he did, he gave peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue the capacity to love each other without condition and to love each other in spite of their personal, racial, ethnic, social, and national differences. One of the greatest pictures I saw while I was gone was worshiping at Chiswick Baptist Church where the nations were all represented. You see, until Christ, there there hadn't been a cure. And there wasn't a cure in sight for this constant hostility between people, groups of people, races, ethnicities, all those things. There hadn't been a cure between the division, in the division, for the division between Jew and Gentile. But when Christ came, breaking down the wall of hostility between them in his flesh, he did for each and all of them what only he could do. Verse 15 says, He abolished the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Do you see it? By personally coming, by fulfilling the commandments perfectly and completely for all of them in all of their places, by taking their sin upon himself at his cross, And as he was raised back to life, Jesus made the way for the greatest longing of human hearts. He made the way for peace. He made peace in relationships possible. 
He removed the power of the selfishness and the self-centeredness that keeps us from loving and caring for each other like we should, like we desire to. He broke down. He ended that hostility that keeps marriages from being what it is meant, what they're meant to be, that keep families from being what they were meant to be, that keep nations from being what they are meant to be. They keep communities from being what they are meant by God to be. I love the way Paul puts it in verse 16. Do you see it? He killed the hostility. Do you see it? He killed the hostility. Jesus Christ killed the hostility that has been and is to this very day killing humanity. He killed what is killing us. He killed what is killing us. He killed what is killing us. How many of you are married? Come on, I mean, some of you aren't sure. Okay. How many of you are definitely married? (laughs) This you know. Okay, good. Have you married people ever noticed? Have you ever noticed you marry people? Have you ever noticed how when there is conflict between you, it feels like your relationship is dying? I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but it does help if you nod. Enmity in relationships kills them. Hostility kills relationships. Jesus killed the hostility. Do you know what the cure is for for your latest big debate at your house? It's a great Sunday school answer. It's one you used when you were a kid if you grew up in church. Everything was Jesus, right? It's just, (laughs) truth is, you were right. He's the one who pulls down the walls of hostility by curing us of what is killing us, our selfishness, our self-centeredness. Shifting, if you will, the center of our lives to be him and not me. See, this is, this is why. This is why there is hope for the nations. There is hope for families. There's hope for marriages. There's hope for the races. Because Christ kills the hostility that kills humanity. And so to be sure, to be certain that the church didn't fail in the mission and witness of sharing the news of peace like Israel did, Paul reminds them of the past and of the fact, now watch this, that they share a story that makes them effectively a miracle of God's grace. 
God's grace that brings human relationships peace. You're a miracle. You're a miracle. Every believer in this room is a miracle. And all of us who know you well, we know that. We see how much better Jesus has made you because you were a mess before. Miracle. Part of understanding what the church is is we, we are a people who together are a miracle. Different social classes, different ethnicities, different races, and we are way too white at Center Grove. Some of you, I just offended you. Well, what am I? We're not getting ready for heaven like maybe we should. Okay. But we're a miracle still. Different people with different personalities, different preferences. We're a miracle. And so what that means is that we need to be careful that the alienation, the separation, the division, the hostility, and the hatred that once shaped our relationships in the past don't find a place among us in the present. That's what Paul's getting at. He says, remember, you're a miracle of God's goodness bringing love and holiness together in such a way that the impossible becomes possible and peace becomes real. What is Paul saying at the end of the day? This is what he's saying. The church, if you're taking notes, write this down. I'll say it three times. The church, the church is a miracle of grace seen in the presence of an impossible peace. The church is a miracle of grace seen in the presence of an impossible peace. That's two. Here comes the third one. Are you ready? The church is a miracle of grace seen in the presence of an impossible peace. That is what the church is. The church is a miracle. So what does all of this mean? Well, we said a couple of weeks ago, we said that the great temptation of of us in the U.S. is to see church as a space and a place that we share with people. But in reality, The New Testament shows us that the church is not made of spaces and places, but faces. The church is people, which I I confess, it makes everything complicated. People make things complicated. The reason your marriage is complicated is because your husband or your wife is a people. (laughs) That's why. And people are messy. And here's what we tend to do. 
We tend to keep the messiest of people at a safe distance. It's kind of what we naturally do. You're, you're super messy. You always got stuff going on. I'm, I'm going to stay with the people who can get you know, their stuff together, or at least most of the time. And what that does to us, and I want you to see this, what that does to us in, in the States is we come to understand the essential nature of the church in ways that are safe for us. We come to understand the essential nature of the church in ways that are safe for us. In ways that allow us to be part of it, but with limits. To be in or around it, but able to get free of it at any time. Put another way, we tend to treat the church like the PTA or a running club or a shooting club or whatever club, cycling club or whatever. We tend to treat it like a voluntary association. And so what happens is the, the local church becomes optional for many in practice, if not in theory. But see, this is problematic if you take the Bible seriously. And if you take the Bible seriously, what the Bible tells you is if you are a genuine follower of Christ, you have a common story with every other follower of Jesus. And that common story binds you together. It cannot not bind you together. And what that means is in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, in, in, in the local church, this is what that means. It means that I can never look down on you. I can never look past you because your past and my past are the same past. Your future and my future are the same future. And the reality is your present and my present are meant to be the same present because we have the same story. I once was lost, but now am found. I once was blind, but now I see. And my story is exactly like your story. Oh, I know, I know, I know the details are different. You were a lot worse than I was. Not in the eyes of God. Lost is lost. Broken is broken. Every lost person you see this week are right where you were. Get off your high horse. Shoot that horse. I mean, if Jesus could kill the hostility, you can kill that horse, right? Am I right? Yeah. 
And then once the horse is dead, dismount. Our world is always being torn and divided into warring camps and factions. But we are a people among whom the hostility has been killed and replaced by grace with an all-encompassing peace. This is our story. This is our song. a grace we don't deserve with a peace that except for Jesus is impossible. We are a living miracle. By God's grace, Jesus killed what was killing us. And he's still killing the hostility that is still killing us in our nation, in our communities. Here's the warning. This hostility, it can return. It can ruin churches. It can ruin believers. It can ruin relationships. Whenever you and I forget the miracle of what Christ has done and who we are in him, If we're not careful, we'll misshape, we'll misunderstand the church. If we don't see it and celebrate the miracle we are, if we keep trying to understand the essential nature of the church in ways that are safe for us, in ways that allow us to be part of it but with limits in it but still able to get free of it anytime we want to, if we keep doing that, then... I'll say it plainly, we've denied the truth of the gospel. Jesus brings us near, and when he brings us near, he brings us together. And if we're not together, we are denying the truth of the message we say we believe and that we preach. This is not a PTA. This is not a club. This is not a voluntary association. You say, well, I'll show you. I'll just leave. Well, go ahead. Because if you have that kind of attitude, you're denying the gospel that is at the very center of who this church is. What this is, is a gathering of one people with a shared story that humbles us all, that compels us to know and love and care, to stand by and stick with each other through thick and thin, 
simply because our story is salvation and our Savior is the same Savior. And though every one of us has sinned and failed, we know that there was one who dared to know us, love us, care for us, stand by us, stick with us. He brought us near to his father. He brought us together. He made us his so that we are no longer on our own and we're no longer able to do what we want with who we are, but bought with a price. He made it so that we've been purchased and made to be a people of peace. And what the world really needs to see is the peace that Jesus can give. The church is a miracle of grace seen in the presence of an impossible. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed all across the room. If you say today that you're a believer, your profession is that you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you one simple question. What is the state of peace in your life? What is the state of peace in your life, in your relationships, what is the state of your peace? Are your relationships in this church family marked by peace? Are your relationships in your home and your family marked by peace? Are your relationships with your neighbors, your co-workers, marked by peace? The kind of peace that only Jesus can give because he's defeated in you and keeps defeating in you the selfishness and the self-centeredness that causes so much hostility. What's the state of your peace? The closer you are to Christ Jesus, fresher the story of his death and his resurrection the fact that he lives the fact that he's made you whole closer the greater your peace will be what's the state of your peace for some of you today you may have known Jesus is not a fairy tale I don't know, maybe you've seen him as a tree hugger and a preacher of peace and love. Perhaps you know that he died on a cross bearing on himself the sins of the world and perhaps you know 
that he's been raised from the dead. But it's also very possible that you know all these things and you still do not know peace. You just don't know peace. Why? Because the crucified and risen Jesus has not been made real to you. He's a fact, not a reality. The risen Jesus comes this morning and he says to you, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one's going to find any peace till they found me. Never have peace about your past. Never have peace in the present. Never know peace about your eternal destiny until you have come to know the crucified and living, risen Jesus. And he says to you today, come to me. still closed. Is that you this morning? Is that you? In desperate need of peace. In desperate need of Jesus. The real Jesus. If that is you, and no one else looking around, you say, that is me. Would you just lift your hand and keep it there? I'm the only one looking, only one watching. That's me. Just leave it there. Leave it there. All right. You can put your hand there. If you raised your hand, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find me. Find me, and I'll be easy to find because I'll be right down here, right up front when the service is done. I'll be right down here, right up front. You find me. I'll know who you are. Let's talk. Today's your day to find peace. Today's your day. Today's your day to find peace. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done, all that you're doing. Keep reminding us of our story. Keep us living out of our story. And keep making of us a people of peace. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.